Can we open up our Bibles now to the book of 1 Samuel? As we continue our series in this Old Testament narrative, please turn to chapter 15. We're going to be in this, this whole chapter this morning. I have a friend uh, that many years ago I did some theological training with, and he, he now lives in North Carolina. He has a thriving home inspection business. And once in a while, I'll, I'll come across his account on social media, and he will post sort of a recent experience of one of his inspections. It'll kind of start off like, hello, everyone. Here's another reason to get a thorough pre-build inspection done on your home. Um, and he's, he's walking through this new home that he just is inspecting that somebody's about to buy and move into. And some of the videos and the pictures are, are just unbelievable of what is going on. He's up in the attic, and you're seeing rafters that have just been complete sections cut away because somebody didn't think ahead, and now they're running uh, you know, ductwork through the middle of what should be load-bearing um, roof rafters, and then dangerous flammable venting right next to you know, flammable material uh, to just hack jobs on the roof where the guys just were lazy, and they just try to cover up a mistake by slapping some caulk on their entire missing shingle. All of this, in turn, is going to fail, leak, or ruin the home, or burn it down. Now, Knowing and following these codes are there for a reason. Consistency, stability, endurance, safety, and particularly for those people who are going to live in that home. And it's one thing to be made aware of a mistake that happened and to repair and fix something that was done in error. It's quite another thing for a builder to know something is wrong, to purposely do it, and then sheetrock it up or cover it up in the attic. Um, because you're cutting corners, because you're lazy, or you're seeking to cheat the system. And from the outside, it all looks tidy, it looks correct. But the appearances are deceptive. There's cancer in the walls. There's, there's cancer in the foundations or in the roof. And in time, the house possibly catching fire, the roof collapsing, and people dying. So in the failure to comply with the safe, right, best way and the exterior looks okay, this complying really deep down, there is a serious problem, even dangerous problem. And we come to our text, and this is things that we have been observing in Samuel uh, regarding Saul specifically. We're going to see another situation that on the appearance on the outside, it looks like everything is complying, but when you, when you dig down and you really look at it, it exposes clear, erring worship in dangerous disobedience. So it's a, it is a sobering chapter. It's a, it's, a, it's a sad chapter. We've been wit- witnessing this decline, this spiraling of King Saul. It started in chapter, before chapter 13, but specifically in 13 when Saul disobeyed. There was loss of kingship. Chapter 14, his failure to really step up and follow God's way in battle. And then we peel back another layer of exterior to Saul's heart in chapter 15, another massive failure and his full rejection as king. This is a difficult chapter. There's some topics that are going to pop up in our, in our chapter, some disturbing, some confusing. And, um, you know, as I looked at the sermon planning schedule and we ended up with a baby dedication here on this day, um, you know, the sermon schedule was set. And so guests, I'm sorry, family. If something is uncomfortable or disturbing, just blame it on the babies. Yet, in all the hard, this chapter is for us to come to know God. 
It's for us to, for him to reveal himself to us. And in that, know ourselves. And for that, in turn, for us to know Christ. And so one of the things about going through books of the Bible, chapter, chapter, verse by verse, uh, we, we, just, we have to face some of these things, and, and they're challenging. But we're thankful that the Spirit is here to help us. And so more than any controversial hard themes in our text, we need to know that we are here to encounter Christ Jesus this morning. And our passage will launch us into seeing our need for Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. So let's, let's read verse 1, and then I'm going to pray for us. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Well, God, we come before you, and we, we begin humbly by praying and asking for your help. But we need your spirit to help us to hear and to believe and to receive and to respond to your word today, because uh, these words are your voice to us. Uh, and so, God, we, we ask, because we even sang earlier, we are, we are listening to your words. And so we open up our heart, we ask for your help, and... Uh, and guide us to you, Jesus, this morning. Amen. Amen. So Samuel came to Saul and told him, reminded him what he was set to do to be king over Israel. And he says, now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Now it's critical to see here this, that this is, is God speaking to Saul through the prophet Samuel. This is God's voice, his words to Saul. It's really important we grasp that. Because embedded in verse 1 is a theme, a, a main point through this chapter, and it's found in these, this, the, these words, listen and hear. Several times through this chapter, it, it reads literally, hear or listen to the sound, the voice of the words of the Lord. It is to listen and hear the voice of the Lord. And this has been a focus of this, this book, actually. We've seen it repeated through the book. And even back in chapter 12, when God is telling his people about the king and what the people should do, and they say, fear the Lord, serve him, and obey his voice. And then back in chapter 8, actually, when Israel demanded a king, like the other nations, remember that? They wanted a king like the other nations. They rejected God as their king. And it says they refuse to obey or listen to the voice of Samuel. They reply, no, we, we don't want what you have to say, Samuel. We want a human king like the other nations. And God gave them what they desired in Saul. And he told, he told Samuel, actually, obey the voice of the people. He gave them what they wanted. So God's king, we've been seeing, and his people are to follow and obey the voice of God through the prophet. And Saul has been, and we will see, going to make a mess of that again. So what does God command Saul to do? Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 2, I have noted that Amalek did, what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, Ox and sheep, camel and donkey. 
Welcome to baby dedication morning. <laughs> now, we've seen lots of wars and destruction already in 1 Samuel. And we come to a, a text like this, and it, it, it's startling. It, it should s- disturb us. A command to do violence to a people, in particular, a command to not spare, kill woman, child, infant. This should not be easy to read. What do we do with something like this? Well, there's a few different ways people approach it. They avoid it. We, they just kind of leapfrog over this and not think about it. Others, it becomes so challenging to them um, to, to even embrace Scripture becomes a difficulty. They reject it. They maybe even reject God himself. Maybe deconstruct from the faith, believing that God is just simply a genocidal moral monster and there's no way I could worship a God like this. So why, why would he allow, yet alone command, something like this? What, what do these stories of violence in the Old Testament, what do we do with, do with these? I'm going to take a little bit of a detour this morning, um, thanks to Josh telling me I had to do that last week. I'm just kidding. It, it takes some time to speak to, to this. I, I will not be able to satisfy maybe everyone's questions or uh, thoughts on this. I can't say it all this morning, but we're going to try to help bring some clarity and thought around this. So, Let's begin with this. First, we see Samuel points to a historical situation in verse 2. What was this? Back in Exodus, chapter 17, we read about Moses and Joshua making war with the Amalekites after they attacked them, and they were defenseless, they were homeless, and we see uh, this, what happened in Deuteronomy 25. It actually describes what took place. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and did not fear God. And then God commanded them, when they possess the land, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. So the Amalekites attacked God's people out of Exodus, uh, in their Exodus, and the stragglers, the weak, the elderly, the the moms and their kids were kind of hanging back defenseless. They had no fear, and they just were picking them off. They were just marauders, just taking them off. And God is now instructing Saul to fulfill what he promised way back then to blot them out. So this isn't a, like a petty skirmish or Samuel's violent idea just to get some revenge. This is the Lord's divine war and judgment against his enemy and ultimately sin and evil. So the first thing we need to see and consider when we see these situations of violence is these were not against innocent people. No one is innocent. Actually, every person is all born in rebellion against God and is not deserving of mercy. And the Malachites were wicked people. They were marauders and they were violent and they were like other groups as we see Joshua commanded to war against in Canaan. The Canaanites were known for serious wickedness like human and infant sacrifices, bestiality, incest, child prostitution. In the book of Judges, the Malachites continue to war against and oppress Israel. And later, Haman, the wicked leader in the book of Esther, we're told is an Agagite, which is a name referring to the leaders of the Amalekites. And who was he organizing to commit genocide against? The Jews. So think Nazis trying to wipe out the Jews. So... They were evil people then, and they continued to be. Samuel would later, in verse 18, refer to the Malachites as sinners. So we must see that these wars were not simply wars on some ethnic group, 
but God's war against evil and sin. So in the Old Testament, Israelites were used by God as instruments of his divine justice against sin, representing physically a spiritual reality. And of course, Israel had their own sins. I mean, we see it throughout. We've already seen it, and we continue to see it through the Old Testament. Idols and pagan worship, ongoing problem for them. But it was, it was this, the sin that God was against, not a race or ethnicity. God was against the wickedness of Jericho, yet God would welcome someone from those people, like the prostitute Rahab, into his covenant by faith. False, perverse worship and wickedness is the issue, and God is using Israel to show his holy judgment against such sin to eradicate it and preserve God's covenant promise and his plan of redemption. So, that would be one thing. Next, it was this way and for that time. Meaning, this happened in a focused, historical time where God purposed in his sovereign plan to bring judgment on people through Israel as a nation Therefore, it had a political, ethnic aspect to it. And this judgment was not knee-jerk or sudden. Back in Genesis, we, God is speaking to Abraham, and he says God is going to permit in a patient time over like 400 years in which the sins of those nations just continue to increase, continue to ripen, and become so full of wickedness that he would and must justly deal with that sin. So it wasn't that Israel was more righteous, it was sin against God, and he must deal with that. But God is slow to anger. He's full of mercy. God desires repentance, so he relents at times from punishment. Think Jonah and the Ninevites. And when sin and wickedness take place, God grieves over this in brokenness and, in, over this in brokenness and sin. We'll see that more in a moment. And yet there are times when humanity becomes so corrupt, think Noah, Time and Noah, where everyone, it, the scriptures tells us, their only intention was evil. Everyone's only intention was evil. And for God to preserve humanity, he had to do something. And so this means he deals with other nations, and he also deals with God's covenant people, Israel. Just like, just like other nations, they must get dealt with. If you remembered, we must not overlook, just a few chapters before, we had some priests who were supposed to represent God's God's holiness and his representatives, and yet were judged by God and put to death because of their radical sins. They were not innocent, and God is not playing favorites. Israel would get judgment, too, if they rebelled, and we see that unfold in their history with exile in Babylon, etc. So, Israel is used as God's agents, though imperfect in themselves, for his work to judge and restrain evil in the world and to move forward his plan of redemption. Stay with me. You with me? Everybody, stay with me. Next, we must take Scripture in its entirety. Um, We must read all of the Scripture to interpret this. Uh, We must look at the entire of whole Scripture. Did Mary Poppins pop up there? Okay. (laughs) One author drew attention to this this trailer that I'll, I'll reference. But, you know, we know Mary Poppins, right? Mary Poppins, sweet, lovely, happy movie. There's like kids' movie songs and animals and... Like, it's wonderful. Uh, but somebody took the movie and they spliced it together with, and they have this, you know, scary background music and they took these scenes and, and if you watch just that trailer, you would think Mary Poppins is a horror movie. Like, scary Poppins is what you would think it is. 
And sometimes we like to do that with Scripture. We just want to piecemeal what we think. And if you try to create an image of God based on what you choose, then it will be, it will be dysfunctional. It will be an error. And we can't isolate one passage from the whole teachings of Scripture. And so when we zoom out and we see all of what God does in redemptive history, we see Jesus coming, the Son of God. He came and he taught and affirmed and sanctioned all that was in the Old Testament and often spoke of hell and God's judgment. And if you read Revelation, there is stories about bloods, blood being to the horse's bridle. There's going to be a lot of violence and war in the end. But now, since King Jesus has come, his people are not represented by a political state or a country or one singular ethnic group, but it is now God's church, his redeemed people from all tribes and all tongues and all nations. And in this new covenant, we see the teachings of Scripture forbid violence for Christians in the name of God in order to spread the faith. And where there remains a spiritual warfare still, it is not through one ethnic nation or group, but the church rages warfare because of the cross and what Jesus has done in defeating sin, death, and hell. And we do not war against flesh and blood, but against spiritual darkness through moving forward in the gospel. So God's kingdom now expands and goes forward through gospel proclamation by his word and by our actions in serving and loving like Jesus, not through bullets and swords and, and violence. We also need to keep in mind, one day, God's justice it still works today. It will fully come against all sin and wickedness. In the New Testament, Jesus affirms this. We referenced it already in Revelation. Judgment will come. And we are commanded to be humble. And we are told to consider the kindness and severity of God. The flood and Jericho and the Malachite narratives are foreshadows, pointers to a final judgment of those who oppose and reject God in Christ. And for us to see the blessing for those who find their hope in Jesus. And lastly, this is the final point, and we'll get back to our narrative. In the end, we must bow because he is God. In the end, we must embrace that he is God and that we are not. He is the righteous creator and judge, and we are created beings, finite, small, sinful, and there are realities that we may not fully understand now. And we like to mold and shape a God into our own liking, but we must remember we are below, he is above. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways, and all his ways are perfect and just and wise and good, and there is never any injustice on God's part. And we think God's judgment is the absence of goodness or love, and that's the contrary. Justice is embedded in his pursuit of love. That's who he is, like a spouse after the fidelity of his marriage, protecting and removing all things that would try to destroy that loving covenant. And yet at times, the things that like, like this, that bother us the most, there can be, at the core, it's, it's a resistance that we don't want to submit to him. We struggle against him. Romans 1 tells us that, that we are tempted to suppress the truth and rail against the creator, thinking somehow we can be above him and judge him. And part of our study of Saul and Samuel, uh, in Samuel, is that we need to heed his voice and bow to his voice rather than raise our voice above his. 
God is perfect in his character. In all he is, all his attributes. He's not like a pie or, or a pizza, right? A slice of mercy here, a slice of justice there. He is in his entirety. He is the whole and their perfection. Love, mercy, justice, holy and gracious. And this is what, we, what he has done. And so we must submit to that. Say, God, we don't understand, but we're going to bow our hearts. We're going to ask for soft hearts, and we're going to ask to trust you. Okay. Let's go back to our story. Verses 4 through 7, I'm just going to summarize. Saul then goes and summons a huge army. Read it in uh, in, uh, those verses that there's a group of people called the Kenites near Amalek, and Saul tells them, take off, like, I'm going to be kind to you, about to get bad up here. You don't want to be in the midst of this. And they, they leave. Let's look at verse 7. This is where our narrator tells us what Saul did. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen, and of the fatted calves, and of the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Let's note something very clearly in our text. Saul and the people, Saul and the people, spared King Agag and the best of the animals. And all that was good, and did not utterly destroy and devote to destruction all things. Saul kept spoils, which included Agag. We can interpret this as like some sort of trophy. Like he, and then he keeps all the best stuff. What was, what was in Saul's eyes worthy to keep, he did. And what he thought was worthless, he destroyed. We should hear judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. See, God's divine war instructions were not for kings uh, to, to do some personal conquest, to build their empire, and to br- gather wealth and things and, and slaves. Their, God command told him not to take any spoils, and yet Saul seems greedy and full of self-glory And we should be seeing that Saul is a king like other nations, doing what other pagan nations do. Remember the warning? They're going to take, take, take. Next scene. We now cut, and we see that this news is brought to Samuel from the Lord. Verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Challenging theological category number two in our text. God regretting? The Lord says, I regret. Actually, we see this several times in our text. Verse 11, 29, and verse 35. We'll get to those. But some older translations have used the word repent, which translators, I think, prefer the idea of regret better. So here's the question. How can God, who is sovereign, perfect, knows the future, how can he regret something? Can he, can he make a mistake? What, what does this mean? Well, to begin, God gives us in Scripture ways to understand him. First and foremost, because he's not, he's not man like us. God is spirit. Uh, 
yet he feels and responds and relates to humanity, his image bearers. So God expresses himself in in human forms. There's a fancy theological word, anthropomorphism, that talks about like God uses human categories in order to explain himself and show himself. God's arm saved them, or his face shined, or he smells. Well, God doesn't, he's not human like us. He doesn't have an arm and doesn't have a face. So God's regretting is helping us understand and express something humanly about his heart and who he is. And what is it it's expressing? His sorrow for Saul's rejecting him. God responds to this human situation, though he knows the outcome. This situation, first, the first readers would have automatically thought of something else, another regretting. Maybe you thought of that as we read this in Genesis 6. It tells us this. This is before the flood. Things are really bad. And this is what God says. The Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. God saw all the wickedness, the, the, the pervasive wickedness and destruction of humanity and God's creation, and he was, he was moved by the state and condition of, of their sin. God grieved over this. Know what, know what Genesis 6 says. It grieved him to his heart. We, we are to connect these stories. We're, we're to see that God is moved by this brokenness. The, the most, more significant, greater destruction that happened in, with Noah on the earth, but also how horrible this situation is with king, the, the king, Saul. He is broken over it. He regrets this situation. There is sorrow in this. And yet, God doesn't regret just like man. I want us to jump ahead. If you've got your Bibles open, look at verse 29. And it says, and also, Samuel speaking, also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Well, which is it? He does regret or he doesn't regret? Well, I think, I think maybe the answer is both. He, he doesn't regret like we do. Meaning, God is the one who acts consistently with his character and is moved by the brokenness of humanity rightly at all times. Man continues to act inconsistently, sinfully, and lies. God responds to that sin in his consistent character, which is judgment, and is also perfect mercy. But not like man, or as we should see, not like Saul. This doesn't prove his inability to know or see the future, but it proves his heart that is moved by and sorrow has sorrow over sin. So what would you rather have a God who's just, nonchalant, like whatever, and unmoved by sin and brokenness, or who's irrational and fickle and undependable and inconsistent, swayed and volatile by the inconsistencies of humanity, or our God who's patient and perfect, unrelenting in his mercy and unrelenting in his love and also consistent and perfect and unrelenting in his holy justice. And then he uses all of that perfection to love and to save and to rescue and to judge evil all according to his promises through his character for his people. That is God. That is the God who is perfect. And look how this lands on Samuel. Verse 11. And Samuel was angry. And he cried to the Lord all night. This man Samuel just... Weeping. 
over this. Broken because of the sin. Broken because of this rejection of God. Did he, did he weep over Saul specifically? Did he weep over God's glory being dishonored? Did he weep over the entire nation of Israel that is in this muck and it's just his heart is broken for his people? Maybe all of the above, but I, but I think Samuel is showing us God's heart through this very moment. Aren't you thankful that God is moved by our sins? By the brokenness of the world and by humanity. God is not some distant, disconnected, cosmic overlord in the sky who has no feelings and no emotions, or he's erratic and driven by emotion and impatient and outbursts like us. Great is his love. Great is his love. Great is his patience. Great is his justice and his mercy that moves towards creation. That we know perfectly where that justice and mercy kiss at his cross. So Saul had to do do his job. Verse 12. And Samuel rose early in the morning and met Samuel, or Saul in the morning. And he was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went to Gilgal. All right. We just got to be like, what just happened? Samuel is going to make his way to find Saul, and he gets an update from somebody. And after Samuel's, or Saul's great victory, his great achievements, he throws a party, and then he sets up a monument to honor himself afterward. What is going on here? Remember, we did see recently a monument being set up called Ebenezer. The Lord is my help. What is Saul doing? Is he his own help? Is he the object of salvation for Israel? Saul then heads to Gilgal, ironically, to the place of his setting in as a king, which will now be the place of his undoing. And Samuel arrives, verse 13, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. And Samuel said, What what is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Remember our theme of hearing and like voice sounds in our chapter here? Here, after this awkward and weird chipper Saul, hello Samuel, blessings to you and the Lord. I, I obeyed everything that you told me to do. Samuel basically asked, what is the sound of the sheep in my ear, the sound of the oxen I hear? The hearing and the sounds of the animals are the, are the very things proving contrary, opposite of Saul's confession of obedience. It's proving his disobedience. It's, it's the kid who's denying that he ate the chocolate cake when there's, there's icing all over his face and crumbs on his shirt. He's guilty. He's guilty. Now listen to Saul's response. And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Saul, then like humanity's first parents before Adam and Eve, he plays the blame card. The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, gave it to me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. They have brought them. The people spared. We know this from earlier that Saul and the people spared these things. Saul and the people. He's caught 
And he's just deceived, and he plays out these, this blame card. And he, and he tries to make it sound holy in the moment, right? What does he say? He says, you know, we, we spared them so that we could sacrifice them to the Lord. This is, this is noble. This is a godly thing. There's such a disconnect. And if we read our text carefully, several times in our chapter, Saul refers to Yahweh as the Lord, your God. Not the Lord, my God. Is this his God or just Samuel's God? Samuel has none of these excusing and minimizing, and Samuel confronts Saul, verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop, stop. I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And he, Saul, said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sends you on a mission and say, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Samuel confronts him, reminds him of what he should have done from the beginning as God's covenant king. The Lord made him head, anointed him leader of the Israel to save, save them by trusting in and obeying, being obedient to the voice of the Lord, to fear him, to trust him, and all would go well. Instead, he pounces on the spoil for personal gain. And we hear Samuel echoing what he said in chapter 13, just your rejection of God's word has, has been foolish. This is foolish and it is wicked. Now listen to how deceived Saul is. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the best of things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. This it reads like a really ugly and bad gift that's on a loop. It just like keeps going over and over and over again. Excuses and blaming. I have listened. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. And then he drops in a little additional confession because he's been caught. By the way, I took Agag, the king. I spared him. I don't know if that was, again, to be something like a marker of his mercy. And he shifts attention off himself back to the people but Samuel sees through the attic and drywall, and he peels it back and he exposes, exposes Saul's heart. Verse 22, and Samuel said, has the, Lord, as, as, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption as is iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Sobering. Here's the crux. His, his rejection as king is because he has rejected the voice and the word of the Lord. Saul seems to be doing this sleight of hand, thinking his religious sacrifices were enough to make up for his disobedience from the heart. And God sees through it all. God sees through it all. He knows our hearts. He, he knows where we are. Who, who are we fooling? Who, who is Saul 
fooling in this. That presumption is like a like pagan idol worship. And this concept is highlighted throughout Scripture, from the prophets, through the Old Testament, and even to the teachings of Jesus. The danger and the trap of thinking are outward religious acts without having a heart that is truly believing is somehow acceptable worship to God. David prayed, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. The Lord, prophet Hosea said, For I desire steadfast love, or mercy, and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Isaiah would say that the people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. Jesus quotes that text in the Gospels. It's self-deception. It's thinking that this right religious duty is somehow is going to mask what's really true and going on. It's a mirage. I don't know if you saw a couple weeks ago, I think it was uh, early in the morning, I'm driving one of those super cold mornings and there was a couple sun dogs that happened through that week. They, I don't know if you've seen those, they're like basically rainbows in the, in the winter. Prisms from uh, the, the moisture particles in the air, the sun hits them and it, and it, it looks like three suns. And there's really just one sun, but I mean, it's beautiful. It, they, it looks really amazing, but there aren't, they're, they're not really suns. The temperature will drop and the moisture level will change in the air and they're, they're going to disappear. I thought about that and I could think about how like this, this sort of false mirage of religious duty or false repentance looks like it. it it's chameleon-like. It just changes and it's not really there. It doesn't really reflect the true sun. We saw those and we thought of Saul and I just, I think what, what's nice and appealing and what can happen in for our own hearts, our religious things, our Bible studies, our Sunday attendance, doing sacrificial stuff and yet it can be empty from true worship at a very heart level for us. Oh, how we need the Lord. We need his help. We need his mercy to see so we don't end up Saul-like. Saul is confronted. He responds again, verse 24. And Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his rope, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. There's a lot going on in this little section. Saul appears to be repenting, right? I mean, he says, I have sinned. But I think there's some reasons where we would we'd think this is still not genuine to Saul. One, Samuel Samuel isn't convinced. If we just sort of read the text, Samuel's like, nope, not, not true, not going to happen. Next, it, it, this follows only after he, he's confessing, after he's caught, and there's these consequences, and it just seems like truth just slowly dribbles out as it, the 
pressure gets put on. He still does not take direct, clear ownership and confess those sins directly to the Lord. And then the fact that he seems still concerned with the fears of the people. He wants, he wants Samuel to kind of parade him in so that he retains honor and somehow his political agenda or whatever it is is still in good eyes of other people. And as we see actually the narrative unfold, it's proof, it's proof that it was not true. This appears to only be what the, the scriptures call just worldly sorrow, not godly. It's a lesson for us that saying the right words does not always equal true repentance. And just as the people did not want to hear God's voice, God gave them a king of their own making, and Saul obeys the people's voice rather than the Lord, and therefore he is rejected. So his kingdom is torn from him, leaving the reader, what we hear Samuel say, that there is a neighbor, someone better than you, that the kingdom will go to. So Samuel finishes the job of obedience of God and God's justice. Look verse 32. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of, of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Welcome guests and families. <laughs> Samuel finished this thing of obedience and embodied, I think, what is a picture of God's holy justice. And then in a very heartbreaking way, this is how it ends. Verses 34. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. And Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. So we come full circle. The Lord's grief over the sin. Samuel is grieved. And, and God's word represented by Samuel with, as the prophet with, for Saul. We see them leaving and departing. And they separate and they don't see each other until Saul's death. What, what a broken chasm picture that is. God's covenant king is to obey the voice of God, and Saul shows himself unworthy and disqualified by his rejecting and disobeying God's voice and word. It shows here that the outward religious activity, even partial obedience, is not sufficient to honor a holy God, but it requires someone with a heart humble, fully given to the Lord in faith and obedience. God's people need a king, who is better than Saul. So a better one is anticipated. Get your Bibles open, you, you see chapter 16. We're about to meet another character. We're going to meet David. A man after God's heart. Yet even David foreshadows a need for a better, more perfect, obedient king. You read Psalm 51 earlier ago, and that was after we see, he prayed that after David's serious failure to obey God's word. We need a king, a more perfect king, that not only leads his people and obeys for his people, but offers himself, enacts his mercy in their place of judgment for the failures of the people who've presumed on his holiness and disobedience. 
He is the Lord who has sorrow and regrets over sin. And he's also the God who cannot relent to justly deal with sins. You see, the foolishness of sin is the exchange of trust in God's goodness and wisdom and truth and His Word for our own Word, our own self, our own ideas of what is right and good and true. And we just choose to do that. It's Saul-like. But thanks be to God for King Jesus, who came for us, sinners, who, like Amalekites, who proud to see people like Saul to rescue them. John Stott captures what Jesus did when he writes this. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Stunning. Grace and mercy. And we, like Saul, have put ourselves in the wrong place. But praise be to God that he is the God who's full of justice and full of mercy. And King Jesus is the king who not only receives all of the words of God, hears and obeys the voice of his heavenly Father. He said, all that he tells me, I do. And then Jesus bears the judgment, the crushing blow of God's justice on the cross for all of the rejectors, the religious manipulators, those, those who would come and put their faith on Jesus. All, all who would do that. That's why all of us need Jesus. And God does not relent from dealing with sin justly. Paul makes this argument in Romans 3, at the right time that he might be righteous, the just and justifier of sinners, that he would judge sin upon his son. He is remarkably patient remarkably merciful. And we need his mercy. We need his mercy. I've been just sitting in this brutal chapter 15 and I just, I'm just made aware of my Saul-like tendencies this week. My, my tendencies towards man-pleasing and Nate's honor versus God's honor or my self-justifying pride that I could be given to. I need I don't deserve his mercy, but thanks be to God, we have a Savior who calls us to himself and says, receive my words, come and find me, my words of life and salvation, the word of God who is Jesus. Don't reject his words, but believe and receive them. And all of those who do receive his words, the sword of judgment is taken upon Jesus and not us. And what we could do is get lost in chapter 15 and sort of the deep theological arguments of the Malachites and God's judgment or regretting and overlook God's call and invitation for all of us, invitation for Israel and for us. Will we hear the voice of the Lord and trust on him and obey and follow? Are we trying to sneak in some Christian performance to justify ourselves when there's something else going on in our heart that we need to give God to, that we need to give to God? Let us us not be deceived. Let us come, like David said, with a broken and contrite, repentant heart. This is the chapter for us to take sin seriously. It's a chapter to remind us that we need God's community. Hebrews 3 tells us, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, 
unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we hear this morning, we hear God speaking to us, exhorting us to receive the words of Christ, to turn and trust and repent and receive his words. We'd be encouragers of one another this coming week to, to hold out to each other the words of Christ, exhort one another why it is today, and cast ourselves on the mercy of Jesus. Because this is our promise, saints. 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's salvation provided for us in Jesus is, the, is held out for people like us who need saving. And there's no monuments for ourselves, only for Jesus. And we need his love, we need his mercy, and we need his justice, and we need his grace. And when we see the need for all of that and what God has done, it, it really just calls us to, to bow before him. I, I think it helps us recount words like Romans 9. All we can say is, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. Let us rush into the grace and mercy and goodness of Jesus today. Lord, thank you. The depth and the riches and wisdom of your knowledge, we, we can't comprehend it. Your judgments and your mercy, God, we're moved like Paul here. We just, all we can do is bow and worship. Jesus, thank you for your, your perfection of your character. Unrelenting in justice, unrelenting in mercy. And it's perfectly displayed in the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. We need your mercy today. We need your grace today. We need to hide ourselves in the just work of Jesus today. So give us soft, pliable hearts, Lord, for us that need to be drawn to a place of repentance over something. God, give us strength and courage and help to, to do that today. Let us continue to be conduits of help and encouragement as we exhort one another today that we would we would turn and trust in your saving work. God, we thank you that all the wrongs, all the injustices that we've done, all the ones that have been done to us, Lord, one day, Christ, you're going to come and you're going to make all things right and there will be perfect peace. There will be perfect peace in you, Jesus. May we hide in that today with expectation of the perfection to come. Amen.